Welcome to the Redneck Dentist Podcast. I am Doc Mike, host of the podcast. A series of Forrest Gump-like events have brought me to where I am, a small-town country dentist. My experiences in country living, country freedom, country dentistry, and my reactions to pertinent current events will help you live a life of more freedom and less worry. Thank you for choosing the Redneck Dentist Podcast. So let's get to today's freedom-inspiring episode. Hey there, this is Doc Mike. I cannot tell you just how happy I am to be back here. (laughs) Honestly, it has given me some... uh, I was kind of excited all day. Like, oh, I'm going to get back to doing a show here at Real Liberty Media. So I was pretty excited about that. I just want to make a couple brief up-to-dates, I guess. This is the fastest hour on Real Liberty Media, and I don't turn left. Hey, if you have a chance, if you have any kind of social media, would you share some links on there and bring people in so they can have these discussions with us? Have the chat room up, so I'll be watching that. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm not kidding. It's, cra- it's crazy how much just getting back to somewhat normal <laughs> is, you know, kind of uh, therapeutic for sure. Uh, I did miss the show Wednesday night. As you all know, I had a heart attack on Monday. And, you know, Wednesday I was pretty tired, so I didn't do a show. But I've been preparing, <laughs> so get ready. We got stuff going on for sure. Hey, one of the things that's going on is this weekend, we actually, every single year, I like to sit outside and watch the Perseid meteor shower. And so when, well, actually, this has been going on for decades, and we would have kind of a sleepover campout thing. So. You know, our kids and then the grandkids, uh, they know that, you know, we're going to have a weekend where we're just camping out and watching the meteor shower. So, uh, the, this is the weekend. Well, today is the weekend. The Saturday night, tonight is the weekend <laughs> that we're going to do that. We usually do it two nights, but I wasn't ready last night. Anyway, okay, so everybody knows... I had a heart attack. I'm not going to beat a dead horse about it. I do want to talk about a couple things about having a heart attack. Just from my experience, and please believe me, that my comments are in no way meant to diminish the um, significance of having a heart attack. But I think it's important for people to know because my experience was not what I think people would call a normal heart attack experience. Although, I think a lot of it would fit into the normal category. But here's the thing. Like, um, I didn't know I was having a heart attack. I knew something not good was going on with my body. And that's what I told Rochelle. I was like, I think you just need to call the paramedics because I'm not sure what's going on. Hang on, drink time. Mm. But what I wanted to say is, like I wasn't having excruciating pain. If you listen to one of my five-minute takes this week, I did a couple of them. I did one on Civil War rhetoric, which I really would invite you to go have a, a listen to that. Because I could have re-recorded it, but I didn't. And I'll tell you why. Because Pebbles decided to become part of the show. And I actually have a Pebbles cam. So if that happens, I can just switch over to the Pebbles cam. So there's like a, I don't know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds of Pebbles playing with everything on the desk. And uh, I just decided to leave it in because it's funny. And entertaining. Anyway, I'm trying to do my five-minute take, and right in the middle of it, she is uh, like pulling the GoPro apart and <laughs> picking up a pen and 
you know, playing with stuff on the computer screen. And I just started laughing. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to switch over to the Pebbles cam and I'll let people see what I'm laughing about, you know. And, um, you know, you don't have to always be so damn serious. And I wasn't really being serious, of course. Wait, maybe I was. I don't know. It was uh, kind of satirical, I think. And I think it was informative, too. So go and check that one out. And then I actually did a five-minute take on the whole heart attack thing. And there's kind of a funny little episode in there you might want to go listen to. But here's the deal. I was not in excruciating pain. I was not feeling pressure in my chest. I was not feeling radiating pain in my arm. I was not feeling, you know, pain up into my neck or my jaw. None of that stuff. Like zero of those things was I experiencing. When the paramedic read the strip, I mean, so when they show up, I mean, because you, you know, may be having a heart attack, they kind of get on stuff right away. So, you know, she's, you know, they're getting all the stickers on me for the EKG, and they're getting the EKG machine set up ready to go, and asking me all these questions, and how long ago did it start, and, you know, how do you feel now, or you, you lost a consciousness, blah, 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 blah. And I just was like, you know, answered the questions, and then the strip comes out, <laughs> and that poor young lady, she's young, so she's a young paramedic. I'm sure she's seen plenty of stuff already, but I'm just saying, she's pretty young. And you can see her, her brows just furrowed, you know, like she's looking at this EKG strip so closely. And then she just raises her eyes, looks right at me, and goes, yep, you're having a heart attack. I said, okay, well, let's go. You know, that's all we need to know. I'm having a heart attack. It's time to go. Let's go. So, I think my the point I'd like to pass on is, I don't know if you fear having a heart attack or not. Um, I think we all probably know whether we're at risk of having a heart attack. <laughs> like I've said before, I'm not the healthiest guy in the world. I'm I'm fairly healthy. I mean, I continue to exercise. I mostly eat well, but I I didn't make an effort at eating great. Like I'll tell you guys, honest to God, right now, I'm not interested in bacon. Ah, uh, that's not true. I'd love to eat a slice of bacon, but I'm not going to. Um, I look at it this way: I've had 64 years of party time, basically. You know, 64 years of eating whatever I want, you know, pretty much doing whatever I want. And those days are over. Like, as of Monday, uh, August 15th, yeah, those days are done. It's time to make better choices. And, you know, I think before it was like, eh, you know, I, I eat pretty good. I eat vegetables. I eat fruit. I like to do a lot of natural stuff. I get on... Excuse me, I get on the bike, you know, 20 or 30 minutes a day, five or six days a week. So, you know, I'm okay. And then, you know, out of the blue, I have a heart attack. And um, I, it, was, it was never scary to me, uh, and I'm not trying to say like I'm some kind of stud. I'm not. It just, it was just like, okay, well then what do we do next? Well, the next thing we do is we get in that big old ambulance, turn the lights and sirens on, and make to the nearest hospital that's got a cardiac surgeon, a cardiologist, and go from there. Now, I'll be honest with you, man. Um, so the um, so Rochelle couldn't go with me in the ambulance. And, of course, she's freaking out. Your spouse is going to freak out when... when <laughs> You know, someone tells her that you're having a heart attack. So she was going to drive, but then luckily, I'm, I'm telling, I want to say this. You guys, all of you who are in my life in one way or another, have been so incredible to me. It's hard 
it's really hard to understand how many people care about you. Like even in kind of an informal way here on, you know, here on the podcast, I have people that, you know, I consider, you know, internet friends, I guess, or acquaintances, people who I only talk to once in a while. Everybody has been like so incredible and um, part of, and I just, and I just, I just want to thank you all for taking some time out and wishing me well. And I know some of you, I couldn't even, there was no way for me to communicate what was going on, um, like, rapidly. And, you know, you have other priorities when you have a heart attack. So it's not like, and I'm not a social media guy anyway, so it's not like I'm going to hop on uh, Twitter or Facebook or Minds or True Social or, you know, Rumble and, and and post anything like, hey, I'm having a heart attack. Although that would have been kind of fun, like do a live going down the road with lights and siren and watching all the cars. You know, you're just sitting in an ambulance staring straight out the back windows and it's kind of like the apocalypse as you go through. Their cars are on either side of the road <laughs> parked, you know, letting you go through. But I, I'm just, I just want to say, like, the response from everybody, formally and informally, was so incredible. So let me get back to what I was saying. So Rochelle was pretty sh- shaken up, so she didn't want to drive. She was going to. But luckily, our daughter kind of said, nope, you're not driving. I'm going to drive. And so Crystal, you know, jumped in the car brought Rochelle to the hospital, but I'm, I'm telling you, this happens so fast. Like when, you, when you're when you the cardiac patient going to the ER, you know how when you're sitting in the ER because you broke your leg or, you know, you have a knife sticking in your shoulder or something, and you're like, how come they're not getting me back there? And then you see somebody come in on a gurney and they go straight back to the ER. Yeah, that's the cardiac patient. So when in the ambulance, as we got close to the hospital, it was about a 25-minute ride. I bet it was 20. Honestly, it seemed like it was really fast. Um, they said, okay. They said, usually cardiac patients have a room waiting for them uh, as soon as we get there. And they opened up the back of the ambulance at the hospital, rolled me out directly past everybody waiting to be seen for whatever else into a room where... A team of people jumped on me and started hook me, hooking me up to all of their equipment. And uh, I know Rochelle and Crystal weren't that far behind me, and actually I didn't even understand this until later, but Rochelle did make it into the ER room that I was in for about two minutes. I am not kidding, because the cardiologist had been called, and they're like, yep, we're going to take him up and we're going to, you know, look at his heart and get all this stuff done. And um, um, so she actually made it to the ER just in time to say, bye, honey, I'll see you after all this. And um, so if I went to the cath or the cardiac lab or cardiac surgical unit, well, I don't know what it's called, the cardiac unit. And man, they just like strapped my arm down because they had to get in that artery. Now, they gave me a little something they said to make me feel a little floaty, but about halfway through the procedure, I said, I thought you were going to give me something to make me feel a little floaty, and the the uh, anesthetist said, uh, yeah, I already did, so <laughs> you're out of luck. That's the best it's going to get. It wasn't horrible. That's what I want to get to in all of this. It wasn't horrible. Mm, I, I don't even think I was scared at any minute, and I and I, I can't tell you why. Like, I can't tell you, look, like, my, my faith in God is so strong that, you know, I don't care if I'm here or not here, or, you know, I knew that I had, you know, done some things in my life that led to this, so this is the consequence. I don't know why I wasn't really scared, but I wasn't. And things were happening so fast, man. 
And that's kind of one of the things I wanted to pass on here. I, I don't want to take too much time out of this first show, but, you know, they don't screw around, and they have the technology to, to just, I mean, just imagine this. At 4.30 in the afternoon on Monday, I have a heart attack. I think by 5.30, which includes a 20- to 30-minute drive to Salem in an ambulance, um, by 5.30, they're taking me up to have a procedure done to get my heart doing what it's supposed to do. It's pretty incredible, in my opinion. Um, I, have to, I have to stop one second, see if I started the recording program. Yeah, I did. All right. That's good. So, so imagine, 4.30 in the afternoon, I have a heart attack. I'm transported to a hospital 30 minutes away. And, um, and uh, you know, up to the doctor's suite, surgical suite, whatever. And, you know, they start running a line in an artery in my arm, my right arm, and start looking at my heart, you know, and pumping dye in there and looking at which, uh, you know, coronary arteries are blocked. And I had three of them that were blocked. And they, just like, as soon as they identified the, blockage it's like okay they pull that line back out they slip a stent on there and they run that line back up there i don't know how you don't bleed to death while they're doing that in an artery but i'm sure they got some tricks anyway so they run a stent up in there and he put the stent in the blockage and blood starts flowing you're like oh okay you're good uh yeah and so like by i would say 6 37 p.m I'm done, man. I'm heading up to ICU. And, uh, yeah, Vinny also had, Vinny also uh, didn't feel any fear during his ordeal. And I, and I, I totally get it. I, I don't know what it is, but I think, you know, some of us, it's just like, and I, that's what I'm hoping to pass on here is, you know, if you, if you were if you were fearful and anxious as soon as somebody said you're having a heart attack, it would probably not be good on your heart and your like emotions and stuff. If you just understand, okay, well, there's nothing I can do about this right now. We're just going to leave this in these people's hands. They're going to take care of me. They're going to do the stuff that they need to do, and uh, we'll see what it's like on the other side. You know. Anyway. Yeah, the technology is amazing. Imagine like two hours after I had a heart attack, my vessels were open and I was recovering in an ICU. It was literally so fast. It was unbelievable. And I guess Rochelle filled me in later. She said, yeah, you were up there in the uh, surgical suite for an hour and a half. So it's pr pretty fast how they, <laughs> how they get stuff done. Okay, I just wanted to tell you guys two kind of funny things that come with heart attacks and being on new meds because you're on, well, there's like five meds that I'm supposed to be taking. And one of them is a blood thinner, obviously, because they want clots filling in, you know, any of those coronary arteries again. But one of the side effects I noticed immediately is I am just freezing cold. <laughs> And I'm not kidding. I'm going to tell you guys just how bad it is. So I was sitting outside in the little covered area. It's like 80-something degrees outside. There's no wind. It's just hot, right? And I am literally freezing to death, like unbelievably cold. So I had a, a wool stocking cap on. I had a a down uh, jacket with a rain with a rain uh, windbreaker over that, and then I had a down blanket over all of me, just <laughs> just sitting outside. Oh my gosh, trying to get warm when it's eighty something degrees outside. And then the other thing. I did something really stupid the first day back, you know, because they give you so many instructions on what meds to take and when, and I kind of screwed up part of it. <laughs> no, there are no pictures. Well, I, actually, I don't know. There might be because I, I, 
I fell asleep a few times and maybe she took some pictures. I don't know. Um, the other thing that happened is, you know, they give you all these instructions like here's all, here's the medications you're going to be taking. This is why you're going to take each one. And, um, you know, they tell you, you know, they give you a chart like you're going to take this one in the morning and this one in the morning and this one in the morning. And you're going to take this one in the afternoon. And uh, then you're going to take this one and this one at bedtime. I'm like, okay, okay, I got that. Well, two of the meds that they gave me are blood pressure meds, which is really crazy because I've never had high blood pressure. I wasn't having high blood pressure. Um, so, but it was, it's one of those things. It's like, hey, well, you need to take this if your blood pressure is high. Okay. So what they told me, or what I remembered originally was they say, said, take your blood pressure, record the blood pressure, and then take these two medications. <laughs> now you, you would think like being a dentist that, you know, we do blood pressures on every single patient, every single appointment. You'd think I would know blood pressure and what to do with blood pressure, right? Okay, so the first day I take my blood pressure, it's 100 over 74. I'm like, oh, that's pretty good blood pressure. I go in the freaking medicine cabinet, grab the two meds that I'm supposed to take for lowering blood pressure, and I took them both. And like within half an hour, I'm like, oh, I'm a little bit lightheaded. I better sit down and relax. And so I sat down and I was just kind of relaxing, breathing, trying to take it easy. And I was like, I better take my blood pressure again. Yeah, it was like 74 over 46. <laughs> because I obviously didn't need to take a blood pressure reducing medication. And then this foggy kind of um, memory started coming back. And I remembered that nurse saying, you know, so here's the number. If your blood pressure is above right here, I want you to take one of those medications and then take your blood pressure again in half an hour. And if it's still not down to where we want it, take the second one, right? That's not what I did. I took my blood pressure and then took both of those meds. And I dropped my blood pressure for the rest of that day. It did not come above 100. But it's like I said, I've never had high blood pressure, so I'm, I'm sure they're going to probably knock off those meds eventually. But um, I'm going to be a lot smarter about like recording the blood pressure, looking to see if I should be taking a blood pressure med because, you know, you don't want your blood pressure so low you're not... Uh, you're not able to function <laughs> or you start feeling lightheaded. All right, where are we going to go? That's enough of that talk. But I just wanted to kind of pass on my experience with this heart attack. It sucked. 100% it sucked because nobody wants to have a heart attack. And trust me, I'm not real thrilled about being on a, on a blood thinner and being on um, uh, the blood pressure meds and carry a nitroglycerin with me, and, uh, oh, and I have to, I, they have me taking Pepsid, I don't know why, but um, it's for heartburn, you know, like if your stomach is upset or something, but, yeah, anyway, <laughs> that's how that goes, and thank you so much, all of you, for just, like, thoughts and prayers, whatever you did, you know, positive vibes, um, I really do appreciate it, and you are all very extremely kind to me, and I'm not kidding, that, that goes a long ways. All right, let's look at some horrific stories. No, let's do something fun. I want to do a couple of fun things right off the bat. I've been wanting to get to this story for a while. This is kind of crazy. Um, so there was this guy, let me, I might as well, I want to go get this uh, original What's the biggest group of animals ever recorded on Earth? This is the craziest thing I've read in a long time. And it was really fun. And actually, the article is really long, but it's really worth reading because 
it, it's just eye-popping numbers. I'm, I'm going to pull some of them out here and share with you. But let's uh, get the guy's history. Uh, he says, oh, this says in the early, oh, and this is from, what is this? Live Science, one of my favorite sites. I mean, yeah, they still have a lot of greeny climate change, you know, stuff in them, but you do get some stories that don't blame everything on man-made climate change, so that's good. In early 2020, ornithologist Noah Stryker found himself walking amongst several thousand chinstrap penguins on Elephant Island, a remote blip of snow-covered rock just off the Antarctic Peninsula. He was there to carry out a census of the island's penguin colony, which hadn't been properly surveyed since 1970. I'll never forget the sight. Sound and smell, joked Stryker, a graduate student at Stony Brook University in New York, as well as a professional bird watcher and author. This, so um, the survey that he and his colleagues eventually produced revealed that, that chin-strap penguin numbers are in decline. But despite this, this species actually forms one of the biggest colonies of penguins on Earth gathering in the millions in some Antarctic locations. But counting these, these animals doesn't daunt Stryker, who has actually developed something of a hobby for this task. It started a few years ago when he himself, uh, when he found himself pondering how many starlings were contained in the magical murmurations that these birds form, and which and which swell and undulate across the evening sky in many parts of the world. They are quite beautiful. It almost looks like smoke, Stryker told Live Science, and it just gets you wondering how many of them are there. The answer, he discovered, was there are roughly one million in the average murmuration, all soaring and swooping in unison, that discovery spurred Stryker on to answer an even more ambition, ambitious question. Beyond birds, what's the largest group of animals ever recorded on Earth? Hang on one sec. Thank God for mute buttons on mic. Yeah. Um... Where did I leave off? The answer he discovered was that they're roughly, yeah, all sort. That's an amazing thing, too, if you've ever seen a cloud of starlings, is how do they change direction? Like, at how do they not crash into each other like crazy? It's like the most amazing, uh, you know, kind of synchronized flight of any bird out there. Anyway, uh, so... Uh, but those char uh, charismatic penguins fall far behind the red-billed quayla, this small species that can gather in single flocks of several million over savanna and grassland er areas in sub-Saharan Africa. So huge that they seem to roar as they pass overhead. I think they're considered now to be the most abundant species of bird in the world, and they do make very large flocks in the millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions, Stryker said. Their explosive success as a species may be helped uh, by agriculture's, uh, agriculture's spread. These birds consume grass seeds, but they'll also settle for fields of cultivated grain. As such, they're loathed by embattled farmers who lose, lose huge shares of barley, buckwheat, and sorghum harvest to these birds every year. Kayla are so numerous that uh, observers say it can take five hours for a flock to pass overhead. But here is where the species yields to even more populous bird that once was abundant across American skies, the passenger pig pigeon. 
There are stories of people standing there and watching a single flock of passenger pigeons fly over them for hours or days at a time, which is crazy, Stryker said. One gathering in 1866 was recorded as one mile wide and 300 miles long and was estimated to contain about 3.5 billion birds. <laughs> of course, that was before hunting drove this uh, successful species to extinction. Isn't that amazing? Like, so, like, we literally drove one of the largest populations of birds, passenger pigeons, into extinction because, you know, I guess they were harmful in some way. Um, let's see, so there's uh, some fish that he talked about, specifically Atlantic herring, gathering in schools that exceed 4 billion. That's amazing, by the way, I love herring. Um, migratory mammals like springbok, and wildebeest in southern Africa that have in the past gathered in herds exceeding one million, forming vast processionals that march across the sun-beaten savanna for weeks. There are further; uh, These are further outstripped by their winged mammalian cousins. In Texas, there's a single cave that's home to more than 20 million Mexican free-tailed bats. In East Africa, Africa earlier this year, a veil of insects swept across the sky, forming a mass of spiky legs and fluttering wings that spanned nearly 930 square miles. It was literally like a black blanket that went over the clouds. It was difficult to even see the clouds. Um, that swarm was composed of desert locusts a species that turns up in huge numbers sporadically in East and North Africa, as well as parts of the Middle East and South Asia. The, that particular event was the largest swarm seen in the Horn of Africa in 25 years. Experts estimate that locust swarm at a density of about 50 million per three-tenths of a square mile. That means the single 2020 throng would have contained nearly 200 billion locusts. Uh, the species can increase up to 20 times its population in the span of three months. And just imagine the damage those things do. Holy cow. Um, let's see. In, 19, in 1875, an amateur meteorologist named Albert Child stood bewitched as locusts whizzed across the sky in a swarm that ultimately cloaked a large portion of the western United States. The species was the Rocky Mountain locust. Uh, child estimated the swarm covered an area of 198,000 square miles. This historical event became known as Albert Swarm, and based on Child's estimate, it was thought to contain not millions, not billions, but trillions of insects. Three and a half trillion to be exact. Isn't that crazy, like, just how much, like, the numbers are staggering when you think about it. Like, so many, like, we, we don't see that today, I'm sure, because pe pesticides and herbicides and who knows what else, but, um, yeah, those are some staggering numbers, and I really wanted to share it because it's just, like, so fun, right? Um, okay, what's next? What is next? Um... Oh, yeah, another, oh, no, so this kind of follows along, sort of, follows along the same, kind of the same uh, routine, yeah. Um, it, so it's not necessarily an animal number, but it's just an interesting number at this time in our lives to see this particular institution called the Future Farmers of America has the most student members ever. 850,823, an increase of 15% from last year. In addition, the number of chapters increased by 178, 
resulting in 8,995 in the U.S., Puerto Rico, and the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands. Now, what's interesting about that, in my opinion, like, I don't know if you guys have teenagers. <laughs> like, most of the teenagers I know, are, they have no interest in future farming, like, at all. But look at the, what's going on in the world. And is it important to know how to grow food, to know how to manage food, to know how to, you know, uh, help out in getting food to, from the uh, farm to the table? So future farmers of America, I mean, it's it's amazing to me that so many people are showing an interest in it. And it's going to be important, too. I think it is important. And I think it's really tremendous that some young people today are like, you know what I think I'll do? And go figure out how to grow food. Because, like, you know, if you, you know, luckily, I mean, here on, here on the homestead, um, we have the grandkids here, and they take part in this whole thing. You know, we're raising food everywhere. And right now is an awesome time because there is so much food coming out of the garden that now we got to go into storage mode. Like, we're not going to be able to eat all of it. We're not, there's just no way to eat the, as much food as coming out of the garden. So uh, we need to start processing it and put it in storage, you know, and then we have fruit trees that are bearing fruit that, you know, we're going to have to do some, you guys remember that little tiny apple tree last year? I was, I was looking at, excuse me, I was looking at um, some pictures from that tree I posted on Imgur, and I was like, man, that tree was so small. <laughs> and it produced so many flipping apples, and guess what? We're still eating that applesauce. There's still applesauce in the pantry from that tree. Just imagine. I mean, it, even if we didn't have any other food, well, we'd be eating applesauce. Probably wouldn't last as long then, obviously, but, you know, good news is we already have more food coming in. We already are eating food. I think I might have mentioned uh, last week, uh, I don't know, honestly, but um, Crystal made a, uh, a curry dish, and almost all of the stuff that was in the curry was harvested right here on the homestead. That's kind of awesome, you know, that we are producing food and eating it. And then, you know, even one of the grandkids came up to me today and he was like, Hey, Papa, did you eat any of the beans out of the garden? And I was like, well, yeah, I did. And he goes, me too. He goes, man, they're so good. And these are those kind of yellowish uh, bush beans or pole beans. I don't know. And he was like, yeah, they're so good. I'm thinking to myself, man, that is an awesome, awesome connection right there. That that kid saw us break ground in the garden and um, till the garden repeatedly until we broke up that nasty clay and we got some manure in there and helped, you know, make it a little more organic. And then, you know, we lined out all these rows and we put down some weed control, um, you know, some weed control cover. And, uh, and you know, water for, what, months now. And then you have this vegetable that you can just walk down in the garden and pull a vegetable and eat it. You know, that's an awesome lesson for people to learn. You know, that that's how food is made. That, that's, how, that's where food comes from. And I'm excited about, you know, our future here with food. It's pretty awesome. Um, and it's just cool to see. It's cool to see kids make that connection and actually like the results because he could have eaten one of those beans and gone, oh, that sucks, I'm not eating that again. And uh, 
Yeah. Hey, so I just want to stop and respond to this comment in the chat room. So, so the comment is, you need a hog for the slop and scraps doc. And yeah, Vinny, I do need a hog. But guess what? Hog is not on menu anymore. <laughs> well, not for me anyway. I'm sure we could raise a hog for some other people. And uh, maybe keep some prime cuts. That would be that would be good. Oh God, no, nope. Yeah, yeah. Frozen veg, fresh or frozen vegetables. It's the only way to go. Uh, you, there, I, there's some people that can can in a certain way that keeps that crispness. But man, the canned stuff that you buy in the store, they overcook it so much. It's just a mushy, nothing vegetable. I hate canned vegetables, but it's a good way to keep food for a long time, so I can sure understand why people do it. Um, yeah, what's next? I saw some other story here. Let me see what it is. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm just going to tell you guys right now. This is how many stories I have. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I have 16 topics I wanted to cover. We're, what, three in. <laughs> we got 20 minutes left. <sighs> Maybe just a little bit uh, overambitious for this show. Hmm. Yeah, no kidding. I have, I have plenty of stories for uh, for the next couple of weeks. I did want. Okay, here's a. This is a good one, and then I'm gonna get in some maybe political stupid stuff that just drives me crazy. So listen, this is the craziest. Another one of those stories that you just want. You just you just kind of want to say like, why? Okay, if you already see food shortages. And somebody comes into your county that says they want to produce a ton of new food. And you don't like... So here's here's the story. Uh, Oregonians concerned about large poultry farms. I'm going to bring this up. All right, poultry debate. Large chicken farms raise concern... Go away. In rural Oregon, uh, Sio, Oregon, a steady mid-June rain fell as Christina Eastman drove her UTV past fields of grass and yellow flowering dill at her family's farm outside Sio, Oregon. Eastman stopped along the North Saniam River near Wiseman Island, a reach known for providing high-quality fish and wildlife habitat. From here, the river flows past an adjacent property that could soon be home to millions of chickens raised every year for the poultry company Foster Farms. Um, the Operation JS Ranch is one of three new large-scale chicken farms proposed in the Mid-Willamette Valley. Members of the industry say the farms are needed to make up for lost production as more growers have retired in recent years and to keep up with Americans' appetite for chicken. However, the proposals have neighbors like Eastman worried about potential impacts, potential impacts, including air and water pollution, odor, and increased traffic on the rural roads. They couldn't pick a worse place than here, Eastman said. It's going to affect our farming. It's going to affect our crops. It's going to affect our way of life. Really? I mean, how, how would you make that assumption? I mean, basically, you're making an argument that, yeah, that poultry farm is going to suck, but our, you know, what did she grow? Uh, I don't know, wax beans. I, I forgot what she grows, but, she, oh, mustard. Yeah, but her but her farm is, you know, okay. It didn't affect anything when they started their farm. But these large poultry farms are a problem, right? So they start, they, so they start already. Before, before the farm is built, before chickens start showing up, which I guess is the time you would want to stop stuff, is before it's actually built and going. But it's just interesting to me that 
you know, this wasn't a year ago or two years or three years ago. This was literally in the last couple months that this topic came up. In fact, what's the date of line on this uh, story? This is in the Capitol Press, my little, yeah, August 4th. So this was three weeks ago. Yeah. And so, so already they're like, you know, digging their feet and saying how horrible this is going to be and, you know, how it's going to destroy the environment. Like, you know, whatever she has done on her farm didn't alter the environment at all. I'm sure it was always, um, I really hate that I forgot what she's, oh, dill, yellow flowering dill. Uh, fields of grass and yellow flowering dill at her family's farm. Yeah. So I'm sure dill just grew there naturally before they showed up. And, uh, you know, they didn't have to do anything to the environment at all to grow more dill. But, yeah, they got to stop it, right? <laughs> Oh, chicken farms did ruin the water in northwest Arkansas. Well, that's interesting, yeah. Okay, that wouldn't surprise me, but, you know, you, nitrates, you said uh, that they were putting nitrates in. You know, here's the thing. We're not really allowed to build farms and just dump all of our, you know, stuff into, you know, the local river system. You know, they don't let that happen. When these places are built... They take that stuff that harmed environments in the past, they take it into account. And it's like, okay, we're not going to let that happen again. So this is how you have to, have to, uh, right, how big of a settling pond, you know, settle out some of those things, or is there some way, I don't know anything about these big farms. I mean, I know, like, I know, I'm glad I don't have to buy foster farms chickens because, yeah, it's just a giant, um, it's fantastic chicken. Let me just say, <laughs> let me, wait, let me check my list of uh, advertisers real quick. Nope, they're not on the list. Yeah, it's a huge freaking company, and they raise a bajillion birds, a bajillion birds. And I don't think it's most... Um, sanitary operation but you know what why how why would i even say that i don't know never been there i've seen some films that probably PETA or some jackasses put out about you know what horrible living conditions chickens are raised in and i gotta tell you i don't think chickens really complain that much it's like man i have to stand here and a couple times a day they throw me some food i got water and I do this for like six or eight weeks, and then they come and kill me and put me on the platter. Yeah, I'm okay with that. It's a good life. <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't know. But meat chickens grow really fast, like six to eight weeks, man. You better get them off their feet because they're going to break a leg. And I mean, maybe that's what that's kind of where we are, though. You know, if everybody wants to eat chicken... Well, you got to produce a lot of chickens. By the way, just a little side note, uh, the two hen varieties that I chose to breed with our rooster to make our meat chickens, they actually started laying eggs literally in the last day or two. So we're going to let them get to the point where they're laying, you know, regular size eggs. And then we're going to start doing some trial runs and see if we can produce 8 to 16 chickens every month. I don't know why we wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, and it'll be locally grown. It'll be organic. It'll be healthy. You know, but, yeah, my what I was getting to is if you, if you have to feed, you know, most of the world chicken, well, yeah, because everybody isn't growing their own food, you got to have these giant feed lots. Um, with, you know, maybe not the best living conditions. I'm okay with that. Honestly, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with animals living in those conditions if it means I get to eat. 
you know, so I'm just glad we're doing most of that on our own now, you know, here here on the homestead. Just taken a lot more seriously. And it's it's really man, it's it's been a blessing in so many ways just to see the kids kind of adapt to it and take to it and understand that that's food. That's where our food is coming from. And, you know, if food doesn't come from anywhere else in the next eight months or whatever is going to happen, who knows? Well, we're still going to have food. You know, because this is just the summer crops that are growing. We still have our winter crops, um, squash and pumpkin, that kind of stuff, uh, winter squash and pumpkins that are, uh, you know, that they'll be growing until, you know, October, November, maybe December. And they'll store for a long time. So, you you know, we'll get through the winter with whatever it is we have if there's nothing else. Anyway, it's cool that the kids are seeing that. Yep. All right. God, I want to talk about Pfizer and monkeypox so bad. Let's do it. There's a, there's ten minutes. Um, I know probably everybody is sick and tired of hearing about vaccine stuff, but I think one of the things I worry about is if we stop listening to it that we'll forget just how messed up they are. Um, let's see, where shall I begin? Uh, now, if monkeypox gains a permanent foothold in the United States and becomes an endemic virus that joins our circulating repertoire of pathogens, it will be one of the worst public health failures in modern, modern times, not only because of the pain and peril of the disease, but also because it was so avoidable. You know why it was avoidable? <laughs> because all we had to do is tell gay men to quit having sex and monkeypox would quit uh, spreading. But you can't tell gay men to quit having sex because that would just be so intrusive. You can literally take away every other human being's rights in the United States of America. You can literally tell them not to leave their house. You can literally tell them to wear a mask, don't touch their face, social distance, get the jab. You can take, literally eliminate civil rights completely but you can't tell gay men to quit having sex because that just wouldn't be right. 90, I forget the number, it's some ridiculous number, 98% of monkeypox cases are, um, you know, are amongst gay men having sex. Not gay men having a drink at the bar, not gay men, you know, going to the, you know, hot tubs together. No, literally having sex, but we can't say that because it wouldn't be right to tell, to suggest to any of these select minor minority groups, hey, you know, for the good, for the good of the country and the world, could you maybe just hold off on having, you know, gay sex for a couple months while we get this thing underway? And the sad thing is that that would be the easiest way to do it. No, but Pfizer wants to create a new monkeypox vaccine, of course. And I got to ask you this question. With the incredible success of Pfizer's COVID vaccine, who in the heck do you think is going to trust Pfizer like ever again? Like, is, is anybody in the real world thinking, 
Man, I can't wait for Pfizer's next vaccine to come out because I'm going to be standing right in line to get it. Guess what else Pfizer's working on? This is really sad because people, I can see people just be like, yeah, I'm going to go get that one. Uh, Lyme's disease. Yeah. We're going to get Lyme's disease vaccine. Pfizer's working on it with some other company. I forget. Oh, I have it here in my notes. Let's see. Where is it? No man-made monkeypox. No, I'll come back to that one. Uh, <laughs> I'll get to it. Hang on. Lyme's disease. Yay, Lyme disease vaccine from your favorite and so successful vaccine producer. <laughs> Lyme disease, what you need to know, and a potential new vaccine and when it could be available. Oh my God, sign me up now so I can avoid Lyme disease. And I'm not saying this, you know, I, we have family members who suffered with Lyme disease for years. It is no joke. I'm going to have to ask him what he thinks about a vaccine. Like, would he do it? Because, I mean, now, I mean, would you, would you take, I mean, I don't know what would be the worst thing in the world. Okay, let's say heart attack. Maybe they had a vaccine against heart attack. And Pfizer made it. They're like, yeah, you get this vaccine, you'll never have a heart attack. I mean, number one, you, you can you stop laughing at the idea <laughs> that anything Pfizer says about any of its products are actually true? I can't. Um... Yeah, I would just think that's a complete joke. There is some story also that about Lyme disease. It's kind of interesting. So at some time, uh, at some time in the past, there was some question, uh, and I, I'll present it from this title: Did Lyme disease originate in the eastern U.S. from Bor, Bor, Borrelia burgdorferi? infected ticks that escaped from a laboratory at the Plum Island Animal Disease Center where scientists were conducting top-secret biological warfare uh, experiments. So you got to kind of wonder right off the bat, right? Like, <laughs> okay, why did this question even come up? Well, it's because Lyme disease started showing up in the Northeast uh, United States and it kind of spread from right nearby this uh, Plum Island Animal Disease Center. You know, and it spread from there. So, I mean, is it too far-fetched to think that, of course, this article says, no, it really didn't. Um, let me see, what did, what did, what's their conclusion? Let me find it. Okay, so they said, finally, the prehistoric remains of the Iceman, more than 5,000 years old, provide positive evidence of infection by, by Borrelia. So, apparently, you know, Lyme disease has been around for a long time, and therefore it didn't come from this lab. But, you know, just like the uh, COVID-19 virus, it's probably been around a long time, too. I mean, if you go back and, you know, find some human remains from distant past and you start looking for this COVID-19 COVID, uh, vac uh, virus, you might find it. Maybe not manipulated to the point that the one that came out of the Wuhan lab is. But you might find it. So it's not to say that it that uh, that a more virulent strain didn't come out of a lab somewhere in the United States or somewhere else in the world. And then, really, are you going to trust Pfizer, who has been a complete failure? I would call this current vaccine episode, the last two years, a complete failure. Man, I look forward to seeing you guys on Wednesday. Thank you for listening to the Redneck Dentist Podcast. 
please show your support for the podcast. This podcast is not on the biggest platforms, but it is on the best free speech platforms. Until next time, remember, all bleeding eventually stops.